Welcome to another podcast for Kansas Policy Institute. I'm Paul Sutar, your host. Today we're talking with Patrick Parks, KPI Fiscal Policy Analyst. Hello, Patrick. Hi, Paul. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about kansasopengov.org. Tell me just real briefly, what is kansasopengov.org? Yeah, uh, kansasopengov.org is a government data and spending transparency initiative uh, powered by the Kansas Policy Institute. It was relaunched in its current fashion um, in 2010, um, and it it brings together primary source content from various uh, state agencies, government bodies, um, via open records requests that we uh, submit as Kansas Policy Institute, um, and really a source where citizens can go to uh, see where their hard-earned tax dollars are being spent uh, by various government agencies at the state and local level. Yeah, and that's a that's an important thing to to for people to understand with this. There's a lot of discussion about what our government's doing, especially right now as this legislature is in the final throes of trying to figure out a budget and what to do about tax cuts and school spending and all the rest of that. So much of that, so much of it is just hyperbola. But what we really need is to see the hard numbers, to see what's really happening. And that's exactly what Kansas OpenGov does, isn't it? Yes. And really what's powerful about that is for citizens to be able to go on and uh, look at the data, educate themselves, and start to come to some of their own conclusions about uh, these issues. So rather than just taking what we say or what other organizations say as as the word on a certain subject, to really take that information, uh, look at it all, um, and then start to form their own conclusions from the primary source data. Right. And when you say primary source, let me make sure people understand that clearly. This isn't data that Kansas Policy Institute cooked. This isn't stuff, you know, you heard uh, across the stall in the men's room. This is hard data from the government sources. This is their own data. Yes. Uh, this is uh, data that, that we have to uh, get through what's, what are called open records requests. I mentioned uh, that briefly before. Um, so we, uh, we submit these requests and then get uh, Excel files of, of their own hard data. So it's nothing that we've manipulated. We uh, post everything as is, um, as we receive it on our uh, website, Kansas Open Gov. Right. And, and that, just as kind of a little bit of background, uh, this is something that's near and dear to my heart as a journalist. Uh, I used uh, open records requests uh, quite often, and that stems from a 1972 federal law, the Freedom of Information Act, that then states followed on with. In Kansas, we have the Kansas Open Records Act and the Kansas Open Meeting Act, so meetings are also open. And the the purpose and the intent of these laws, and the Kansas laws even even say this very specifically, it's about the intent of the law is to open government so that the citizens can see what government is doing in their behalf. Exactly. And so that's very important. And it gives citizens the opportunity to engage and to speak with each other and with their representatives from a standpoint of equal access to the data. Yeah. And I was, I was going to add Paul that, uh, 
as we talked about the open records request, these are not just um, items that Kansas Policy Institute or any other official organization um, are using. Uh, these are items that uh, citizens can put together. In fact, we've had a few citizens come to us and ask us for help um, in getting uh, requests put together so that they can access data that's relevant to their community. Right. And that's something the the Kansas open records law and most state laws and the federal law you don't have to qualify by having a certain job or title or somebody else's permission to get this kind of data it is every citizen's right to ask for and receive these kinds of data now that doesn't mean you're going to get it i've certainly experienced many instances when a government agency uh, would stall and and hem and haw and have long conversations with lawyers, um, and sometimes you do have to go to the the legal system and take it to court in order to get some of this data popped loose. Um, but it is our right to have access to it. Absolutely, and as kind of the overseer of Kansas Open Gov, this is something I deal with on a daily basis is really going back and forth with these government officials who know that it's our right to have the data but try to throw in these little wrenches into the process. So you, so you really have to know how to, how to uh, phrase the questions correctly, I guess, just to make sure you're getting uh, the correct data that suits what you're after. Um, so the primary source data is there. There are just certain ways that it can be presented to you that may not answer the questions that you're trying to answer. And so uh, it's just a matter of, of kind of fine-tuning your process and asking for help where you can and really making sure you hone in on a uh, direct question that really doesn't leave a lot of uh, wiggle room in terms of a request. Right, right. And, and Patrick, I want to make sure our, our listeners understand, too, not only is this kansasopengov.org a great resource. You are also a, a great resource in this because of your education background and your interests. You have a background in studying education affordability and access as well as uh, an ongoing interest in civic engagement, which is exactly what this is about. Yes. So uh, part of my master's program at University of Illinois, it was actually uh, called the Civic Leadership Program and Civic Engagement Program, oddly enough. And it really focused on getting a cohort of interested students together who were going to be engaged student leaders going forward. And this was uh, kind of part of the backdrop of, of Illinois' storied history of corruption and uh, lack of openness in government. And so uh, I had some great training there and got a chance as part of our graduate thesis work to look at cost drivers in higher education. And so we uh, dealt with many of these kinds of issues that, uh, that we're displaying on OpenGov and this types of this type of data. Now, let's talk a little bit about just what kind of data is there. This isn't just, I mean, you have state and local government data. Can you give us a, a rundown on just kind of, uh, just some broad brush ideas of what's out there? Yes. Uh, so I'll, I'll start with the state government. So we, we do annual updates of, statum, or of state employee payroll and overtime earnings information these allow for year-to-year -year comparisons of payroll spending within an agency or between agencies. So um, really kind of getting at that human capital expenditure as individuals are looking at what agencies are spending. Um, we also do annual updates of unencumbered cash reserves. 
So uh, these become important when we look at uh, these cash reserves. When you think about it, yes, there's money set aside for the completion of various uh, projects, but many of these cash reserve accounts operate much like personal checking accounts in the sense that there are only positive balances in these accounts when um, revenues exceed expenditures, and so there are surpluses, which means government has more at their disposal, presumably, than what they need on a given uh, annual basis. Yeah, that's one of my favorite subjects. It's something I worked on as, a, as an investigative reporter, that when a government entity schools, for example, and pretty much any government entity is, has been guilty of this at one point or another, when they write a fresh budget for the upcoming year and ask for more money, the natural expectation would be that since they're asking for more of my money, more of your money, more of every citizen and business's money, that they need that money which is sort of pretty heavily undercut by the fact that they don't spend what they had the last year. There's an amount of money that varies significantly between agencies and school districts that they got from the previous year that they didn't spend. Yep, exactly. And this is, uh, I would say, this comes to light uh, pretty recently and continually with uh, when you're looking at school districts, especially, you know, the constant drumbeat is, the just spend more money and we need more money to provide the level of education that we're providing for students. And the ironic part is that when you look at all other cash reserve funds, and this is apart from capital and debt for uh, debt service to service debts and, and capital for uh, construction projects, these carryover cash reserves statewide are up 87% since 2005. So that means uh, these balances, these reserves that are left over um, in the state of Kansas, looking at school districts, it's 87% larger than uh, than that total balance was in 2005. So, so really what that means is that there is money left over after they've provided a quality education for um, all Kansas students or presumably what they've felt is a quality education. Okay, so that's the at the at the state level and 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 schools. Do do you have through um, Kansas Open Gov uh, also local government, uh, county, and municipal? We do. We uh, we do. Uh, we have payroll information for a select group of cities and counties. Obviously, um, we would be spending uh, ungodly amounts of time if we tried to track down payroll information. Uh, for all 105 counties and the cities they're in. But we, what we've done is we've uh, kind of assembled a select uh, sample of cities and counties that we think are pretty representative of the state of Kansas as a whole. Um, and so we have uh, that information available at the city level. We also have property tax data. So we have, um, we have, County property tax data, which covers um, all tax jurisdictions, and then we also have county-only property tax data, which is just for the county and not the jurisdictions within the county. And then we also are going to be adding city um, uh, property tax data as well. That's uh, that's data that we've added in the past, and we're 
we just received that information today, actually. So we'll be adding that shortly. Awesome. Now, one of the things I like most about Kansas OpenGov, uh, in addition to just being able to actually see the data, is that you can actually compare data sets. So, for example, uh, if you look at property taxes and population and inflation, you can draw some really interesting conclusions off of that. Yes, it's actually really interesting. If you look again at the uh, the property tax data that I just talked about, which is statewide and it includes all tax jurisdictions um, within a, a given county and then uh, moves on to the statewide level, uh, we have an 112% property tax increase from 1997 to 2014, which is the most recent data available. And this compares to only a 12% increase in population and a 44% increase in inflation. So you, you start to see a really big disconnect there uh, based on how much that increase outpaces not only inflation, but also population growth as well. Right. If you, if you add the 12% population growth and the 44% inflation, that's 56%, and that's exactly half the property tax increase. So property taxes have increased in Kansas at twice the rate of population plus inflation. Exactly. And we, we kind of did a fun little piece uh, recently before we had the updated 2014 data. We took a look at what we call CEO pay per resident in various cities and counties. And it was interesting to look at the differences. Um, what we found was that there was quite a higher rate of pay per resident in the small cities and larger cities, even like Olathe and Overland Park. And so it really tells you that there, uh, it comes down to how the money is spent, uh, not necessarily how much money is spent. And really this overlays, as we talked about, with these large property tax increases. So even though we know, as all good social science textbooks would tell us, correlation doesn't imply causation, um, it's a pretty big correlation to look at these salary, these high-level uh, managerial salaries at the city and county levels, and then look at these property tax increases as well. Right, and you can you can draw some interesting comparisons uh, by again you look at these uh, different data sets and you compare them population and expenses, for example. And for example, you can look at uh, two municipalities that might have uh, similar size, um, but very different. Uh, budgets. And that raises questions. Why can this area do it so much more efficiently? What's different? And maybe there are good justifications for that, but maybe there aren't. And it, it just, like I say, it raises the question. But really, it starts with providing some answers. How much are we spending? How many people do we have? How much has it gone up in recent years? So that then the citizens can become informed and take those the, that information, generate questions, and then go to their elected official and say, hey, how come this is happening? Yep, that's exactly right. I think there is a tendency, and it, you know, this is not the fault of citizens, but I think there's a tendency to look at our lives within a given city or county and not really pay attention to uh, what's going on there in terms of service provisions and what we're spending. Um, you know, as long as we, we get uh, the services that we've become accustomed to, uh, I think a lot of people check out of the political process and kind of engaging in this in the spending debates. 
But really, I think, uh, and this is where OpenGov comes in, it really provides citizens with a mechanism to say, let's look at this information, as you pointed out, and starts to get us to a question of how do we provide the same or better service at a better price? Right. And school districts, again, I, I don't mean to harp on school districts, but they're a great example because they, they do spend about half of our state general fund dollars, a little bit more than half, actually. And so there are some examples. And, and uh, uh, tell me about these. Uh, you, you have some favorite examples of uh, what people are earning in school districts. I do have some favorite examples. Uh, one of the ones that I'll start with, uh, there's a custodian in the Kansas City, Kansas School District earning $91,000 a year. There is a secretary in the same Kansas City, Kansas School District um, earning $80,000 a year. And these two are followed by a painter in the Kansas City, Kansas School District that's earning $74,000 a year. Yeah, and, and just think about that for a minute, folks. I mean, if you're going to go hire somebody, and custodians are important. I am absolutely not demeaning custodians. They have an important job. But is a custodian's job worth $91,000 a year? Would you hire for your business a custodian at $91,000 a year? If you live in Kansas City, Kansas, your school district did that with your money. Like I said, some of them may be justified, but this lets us know what's going on. This gives us that access to the checkbook, the payroll, so that we can see for ourselves and ask those questions and kind of crack open uh, that that sealed box of government inefficiency. I'll just I'll just out and say it. There are a lot of instances of government inefficiency. Yeah. Um and one of the things I was going to add here, Paul, it's it's not even about necessarily the finger pointing of saying this person in this district makes this much compared to this person in that district. There are also instances where um, individuals might have pay in line with what their professions dictate, but it really raises questions of whether a school district should be having these types of individuals on staff. So, for example, Shawnee Mission has an engineer on staff. They also have two locksmiths on staff. Um, and I'm not trying to get into questions of how they operate on a daily basis, but one has to wonder, you know, couldn't these types of functions that they may not be using on a daily basis be outsourced to the private sector? And even if you're doing this at the same cost, you're saving on the pension cost of having these individuals on the payroll for a number of years. Absolutely. And that is such an important issue. And it's an issue that's been contentious in recent years because schools up until recently have been able to uh, effectively just have the state take take those pension costs, even though the school districts are the ones who do the hiring and set the salary for each individual teacher, which then determines their, their pension costs. That is a real and justifiable cost of having a hire. And if you privatize that, I mean, that just makes sense. If you have a need for a locksmith, you know, let's say, you know, five times a week or 10 times a week or 20 times a week in the school district, can you not hire that out to somebody on a per-use basis or contract that out with a locksmith company for a whole lot cheaper than paying them a full-time salary that then also comes with state benefits. Exactly. And I think, too, 
Um, you know, people start to, when they think about privatization and they hear the word privatization in schools, it's, they kind of look at it as anathema or some sort of dirty word. But really, we have to start looking at these types of outside the classroom functions. We have to start looking, looking at these opportunities to cut costs so that it's really a win-win situation benefiting everybody. If we can save costs on these outside the classroom functions, such as locksmiths and engineers, then we can take some of these savings and put them back into the classroom and increase the amount that we're spending on educating kids. Absolutely. KPI's purpose in this isn't so they can cut jobs, isn't so that some rich guy gets richer. It's so that the citizens of Kansas get a better deal for their dollars. Uh, I've heard it said over and over again, it, you can have better service at a lower cost. It's what happens in the private sector. It's what happens in open government bidding, uh, didn't used to, but part of the result of having these open records laws is that we are getting better at that because citizens have access to the real data. They can see what's really happening with their money. Yep. And I think as, as we may have touched on before, I think that's what's really powerful is when you start to get other individuals questioning this. So it's not just Kansas Policy Institute and other organizations uh, looking at these numbers and, and asking questions. It's uh, citizens throughout a variety of neighborhoods, counties, cities, all throughout Kansas starting to ask these questions of their government. Um, because I, I think as we mentioned, and this applies to schools, uh, local government, state government, it's not how much money is spent. Um, you know, a good education, for example, is not measured by how much, by um, increases every year, by how much uh, money is spent. It's how the money is spent. And so this is a mechanism that really helps us to start to get at that and helps us to start to ask those questions. Just the fact that citizens can access it is helping to keep governments more honest. But that only works if citizens actually do access it. There are a lot of governments in Kansas. We have a very high level of number of governments per citizen. There are a lot of government entities in Kansas who, some of them, frankly, never have citizens show up to their meetings. And a lot more who don't ever get an open records request. You have to exercise that right in order for it to, to be of value. Well, thanks, Patrick. Again, it's Kansas Open Gov. Org. And if you have more, inf more questions or you want to see more about what Kansas Policy Institute is doing and uh, access uh, contact information for Patrick and the rest of the staff at KPI, it's kansaspolicy.org. Thanks for joining us today, Patrick. Thanks, Paul, for having me.